Um, this is actually my hobby, not my day job. I work for the um, Montana State Library and the Talking Book Library, where we provide audiobooks for blind and low vision and disabled individuals. Um, but this is my real joy, is researching and finding out more about the mining history, and especially the mining history around Helena. It's quite fascinating and a little bit underdocumented when you get outside a Last Chance Gulch. Um, what I'm going to be talking about tonight is uh, the Perry Schrader dredge. And I'm going to pronounce it Schrader because that's the way I've always heard it. <laughs> um, the, it was a Yuba dredge. Yuba is the brand name. Same way you have Fords and Chevrolets. Well, this is built by the Yuba Manufacturing Company of California. And um, the unique thing about the Yuba dredges was that they were co-founded, the, the technology for um, dredging was co-founded between New Zealand, California, and Montana. Some of the very first dredges in the United States came to, to Montana in the Virginia City area. The Perry Schrader dredge actually operated out on the Missouri and it operated near El Dorado Bar. This will give you kind of an idea of the area that we're talking about. This is a map showing where the El Dorado Bar is. If you look on the map, the green dot is what most people think of when they think of the El Dorado Bar. They think of riverside access and a bar of a river, like, a, like you see in a, you think, oh, it's a river bar, it's where the ship might dock. That's a little confusing because historically in Montana on the Missouri River, bars were, re, were um, was a term used to denote uh, placer mining. Placer mining is the alluvial um, material that's left when the river goes by and it's all that cobbles, all the rocks that the river leaves behind. Well, the Missouri River didn't always flow as low down in the valley as it does now. It originally flowed much higher. And when the miners came out here in the, 1860, in the late 1860s, they discovered these old riverbeds. Uh, you'll often heard them, hear them referred to as bench placers. Uh, and when they started mining at El Dorado Bar, the El Dorado Bar was actually where you see this blue dot on the map in the middle. It's about 3,800 feet, maybe 200, 300 feet above the current lake level for Hauser Lake. That's where they were mining. So when you read about historic mining at El Dorado Bar, that's where they were mining. There actually was a town of El Dorado Bar where that green dot is. Um, there was a ferry that crossed the river where people could get across the river to go out to the mining works. So mining on the Missouri started right around 1865, just same time as mining here in Helena started. Uh, you had miners working up and down these gravel bars. El Dorado turned out to be quite productive. And part of that was it's such a long bend in the river and, and apparently the ancient riverbed had been sitting up there in that same place for a long time before it moved to its current location. So they did have really good 
um, results when they were gold mining there. Uh, sapphires on the Missouri were also located roughly about the same time, 1865. Pretty much overlooked. Uh, there was um, a few uh, miners, notably um, Ed Collins, located the sapphires, tried to market them, and really didn't have much luck with it. Uh, different things happened throughout times with the sapphire uh, sapphires. Nobody really got into sapphires until a, a kind of a short-lived attempt by a British company in the mid-1890s. Uh, really was over, oversold as a stock without any kind of a market set up to actually market the, the sapphires. And so it kind of flopped on itself. And um, they never actually did much with the, the sapphires which we're kind of moving through time pretty quick, but it brings us up to um, 1938. Actually, in 1936, uh, 37, uh, the Schrader brothers, um, the Sh uh, Schrader family, they owned the local um, bank here, um, got in with Owen Perry, the, who was a mining engineer, and they decided that they would make a go at operating out here on the, on the Missouri River. And they decided to follow um, the idea of using a dredge. They already had a good example. The Porter brothers were already working a dredge in the Helena Valley, um, right where Custer is now. You've often heard of the dredge piles there. That dredge was run by the Porter brothers about um, 1936. So they already had an idea that dredging could make a go if they moved it out onto the Missouri. Um, for the longest time, it took me to figure out a little bit of where the dredge was built and, and how it was built. The last thing we're going to show you on this slide is just that purple dot. Sorry. The purple dot is Black Sandy. Black Sandy is actually where they um, built the, the dredge. These photos are from a 1938, um, it's actually, yeah, 1939 pamphlet which was put out by the Yuba Manufacturing Company to interest people in their buying a dredge from them. And one of the things that they were touting in it was the um, Perry Schrader dredge. They pre-manufactured the parts for it in Oroville, California, shipped it here, probably on rail, don't know for sure, but probably on rail, and then it was trucked out to um, Black Sandy, where they went ahead and um, assembled it, starting in the upper left-hand corner, going to the upper right, bottom left, bottom right, 45 days. It was a new record for them to, to finish the manufacture of it on site, um, they were pretty proud of it, and, and rightly so. Um, part of, I had heard that it had been built at Black Sandy, but I could never really um, believe that until I saw these pictures. And the mountains in the background, if you go out to Black Sandy today, they line up perfectly. If you've been to Black Sandy, you may actually recognize the background. The completed dredge. The um, dredge is a bucket line dredge means that there's a series of buckets connected on this long arm, on the long arm that bring it up into the, into the main housing. Within the housing 
is where the actual sorting of the rock and the gold happens. And then out the back end is a stacker arm, and that's where they discharge the rock that they're not going to use. It's the rock that's the excess. This is a diagram that kind of gives you an idea of what's going on with it. So you see in the bottom left-hand corner, the arm reaching down to the bottom to the bedrock. These buckets are coming around, and they're coming on the bottom side and then coming up the front side of that ladder. They come up, and then they drop into um, what they drop into is a trommel. Trommel's a large tube with holes drilled in it. And those holes allow the small stuff to go through. The bigger rocks keep going down. The big rocks, which you don't want, go up through here, and they get stacked. The stuff that went through, it goes through a series of sluices. The stuff that isn't gold and heavy like sapphires drops in, and you get these sand tailings. And then that's the process. They run it and run it until those sluices get full. They stop it. They clean out the sluices. They start over. Um, one of the things that's interesting about this is how deep it could dig. The, the digging arm on this dredge had 93 buckets. Each one could hold six cubic feet. And the digging depth was up to 48 feet. And they apparently used all 48 feet of that when they were on the river side of the, of the um, Hauser Lake. This is about the best picture. It's hard to get a good picture of a trommel inside of a dredge. Um, I found this one in the Dredging for Gold in California by Darcy Weatherby. It's actually from 1907, but the technology is pretty much the same. This is one side. Um, on either side of the trommel, they had matching sluice boxes so that as stuff came out of the trommel through those little holes, they could double the workload that they were doing. And most dredges were set up this way. Um, the long trommel, here's the big tube that has the holes in it. On this dredge, they were, the holes were between 3 eighths and 3 quarters of an inch. Anything bigger than that went on out the other end. Anything smaller was supposed to come in through here into these sluice boxes. Um, so you see the trommel, and here you see the end of the stacker arm. That's where the, uh, the waste rock goes up and out of the dredge. Uh, this, gives you a, this shows you the waste end of it going out the stacker arm. And one of the unique things about that you can determine by this, you see these waste piles, the tailing piles? See that little crescent shape there? That's really helpful when you're trying to tell where the dredge has been. If you're looking back over a dredging situation, these little crescents, they will always form shapes so the inside of the crescent faces back towards the dredge. It tells you which direction the dredge is going. So this is actually the dredge tailings on the Hauser Lake. This is the ones that you can boat up to. You can see the crescents tells you the dredge went up this direction. And this double pattern is, is typical. Um, part of how the dredge operates, there's two spuds, two long poles that they stick into the ground to hold it in place while it's digging. Well, as it's digging, they can pivot on one of those to, make the, to, to allow it to move in this crescent shape. And then when they get done, they can pivot on the other one. And so you get this kind of dual crescent shape built. Um, so you can see it went up, and then this is coming back in a different direction. 
Now, the only way you can really know for sure is to follow it all the way through. You would ask that. I'm terrible with distances. Um, you know, they're about as, as wide as this room, easily. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, um, you know, that stacker arm is sticking out there 100 feet, so it's pivoting on a 100-foot distance. So, so um, but I don't have an actual measure. <laughs> uh, part of what I had trouble with was deciding did they, where, did they actually, um, where did they actually dredge when they got out here. And this is a great photo. This is from uh, Suzanne and Rick Bidmead. And it shows the, the housing that was um, for the employees, uh, the, work, uh, the workshops. But it also, it shows the first stretch of the dredge coming down along Hauser Lake. So they did actually start on the riverside out at Hauser. And that's where their first work was done. Unfortunately, we don't have good details about what happened, what kind of, um, what kind of results they got from that. Um, the company records just were never left um, to where we could find them. You know, they didn't leave them to a library or, or a family member that we know of. Um, but based on the crescents and everything, this is my best approximation of the, what the, how they dredged. At this point, you see this little um, kind of bay, very square here, clearly excavated. You see this path going up. And then this is the upper bench. This is the one that's uh, so far above the river level. For the longest time, people would tell me that, yes, the dredge went up this way. And I would look at that, and I would say, no, the crescents don't let it go that way. And, and they'd say, no, that's the only, that's the only place out there. They must have dredged over it. And I would think, uh, they probably didn't dredge over it because that would just be a waste of time and money. And finally, I found this 1950 map. Luckily, the topo map, um, the guy who, who drew it up, actually took the time and he actually laid in where the dredge pilings were. And this arm here, which is missing on the previous photo, well, it turns out the farmer had later come in and he was going to raise stuff out there. And so he just plowed it over. And so that section of the arm was missing. When you know it's there, then you can actually follow the dredge tailings and it makes sense. Um, I actually used this and kind of traced out the direction the, the dredge went through. Um, it kind of reminds me of those Nazca lines you see <laughs> on, the, on the Discovery Channel. Part of, you saw how ha it looks kind of haphazard. They're trying to maximize the number of passes, kind of in the same way when you're mowing your lawn, you're trying to take the least amount but still get everything that you can. But in addition to that, they did test drilling. They went out and they checked to see oh, what are the grades of gold that we're going to get at the bottom of this? If we dig down, are we going to get something? If they didn't see that they had enough to make it profitable, then, then they could move on. Luckily for them, it was profitable. Uh, this is actually a great photo, again, from the Bidmeads showing the dredge on, on the upper bench. Uh, you can see the lake way down in the background.
most people when we talk about the El Dorado or about the Perry Strait or Dredge, they're thinking, oh, sapphires, that's what they were doing. They were out there, sapphires, and oh yeah, they got some gold too. Um, so this is what people think of. Um, I'm a member of the Helena Mineral Society, and one of our members um, is just an excellent faceter. And these are stones that, um, examples of stones from the El Dorado Bar area. And these are stones that he faceted. You can see here the colors that you get from the stones. Many blues, kind of aqua green. Um, interestingly, early on, the sapphires from the Missouri River were often referred to as oriental emeralds. Um, you, uh, and that was uh, led to confusion because people would think, oh, they're emeralds. Well, they weren't. It was just a green sapphire. Sapphire is actually a form of corundum. Uh, different impurities in it give it different colors. Uh, the one that people most know is the cornflower blue, but many people don't realize is that the ruby is also corundum. It's the same mineral. It just has a, an impurity of chromium in it that gives it that bright red that's so sought after. This is actually what people ended up Make, this is actually what the Perry Schrader dredge was, was working for. They were working on jewel, working to sell jewel bearings. The dredge operated from 38 to 45. In 41, when the US went to war, um, very shortly after that, gold production was ceased. It was considered non-essential. Only essential industry was allowed to remain open. One of the things that we don't think about in our modern digital age is how important jewel bearings were at the time. Watches, to be accurate, needed jewel bearings. Gauges, to be accurate, needed jewel bearings. These little bearings, um, low friction, um, they're so hard, you know, the only thing harder than corundum is diamond. It allowed them to run for long periods of time without any kind of a wear. Um, chronometers on on ships so they could time bombardments. All the watches issued for, you see in the old movies, they talk about the, the hack watches where you can go ahead and mark the time and set the, to the moment. Jewel bearings are what made that possible. Here's an example. The red ones are probably chrome, or probably ruby. The other ones are, uh, and these ones are most likely synthetic. Um, you can see them in place in a watch movement. These things are incredibly small, um, and, and it's amazing the amount of time it takes to make a jewel bearing. They actually have to slab the sapphire. Um, they then take that slab, and then they cut those slabs into squares. Those squares are then drilled, um, and the drilling is just found um, amazing. It's done with diamond grit, and it allows them to go ahead and drill and polish these to make them. And they have to be accurate, super accurate. So the drill, the, it's like you drill it, and then you redrill it, and then you polish it, and then you, it's, it's just a, it's a, no wonder the jeweled watches were so expensive, just based on the, the amount of time involved. The other thing they did there was gold. Um, I like this picture just because it shows them um, actually with one of, the, um, one of the cast bars out there. Now, I'm telling you it's gold. I can't prove it. It might be 
that this is one of the silver bars. They had low amounts of silver that they also found as part of their dredging. The, the majority of what they found, though, was gold. Yes, the sapphires were important, and they did do, um, they did do really well with the sapphire. It allowed them to stay open, but it wasn't what made them profitable. A good example, in 1941, and we do have records for the company from 41 through the end of the operation. As part of the agreement that allowed them to stay open, they had to report their earnings and their production to the War Production Board. Those records are here in the archives, and, and they allow us to go ahead and access what this company was doing. For the year 1941, they produced 900,000 carats and sapphires. They were paid $9,000 for it. They made a penny a carat. And that was for the good ones. They had graders who had to throw out the cracked ones that couldn't be used for jewel bearings. Um, that would catch that at first when they were working at the, at the site, and then they would take them downtown. They had an office where they would further separate them to send out to the companies. They were sending out the sapphires to Thomas Edison Company. They were sending them out to the um, Jewel Bearing Company. Um, several, they had orders throughout the war. They were asked to pr prove that they were actually producing the sapphires, and they always had orders. They had back orders of companies waiting for these jewels so they could do it. Synthetic sapphire, or synthetic, um, sapphire did exist at that time. It was cost prohibited to, um, to make them. Besides that, the aluminum that you would need to make them was better used to make aircraft. And so when you had a, an actual um, source for them and didn't have to make them, it was just a better use of your time and money. Gold production, 1941. They made, and I always forget this figure, so I brought it with me. So they, they had 5,000 troy ounces, and that was worth $178,000. So that's at $35 an ounce, roughly. So they were really making gold money, but they were producing this really essential sapphire at the same time. See, it's the, one of the few operations that ever made money running sapphires out there, and that's part of why they had a market. After they finished, working the ground that they had leases on. Then they moved it back to the river. That's where that little jetty that we see in the river came from. Came back into the river. And then this is where it gets interesting. A lot of people tell me, you say, oh, I'm, I was tell, I'd tell them, well, I'm looking into dredges, and I'm especially this Perry Schrader dredge. Well, didn't that end up in South America? <laughs> Every dredge you talk about ended up in South America. Well, in fact, this one didn't. They actually repositioned it from El Dorado Bar. They moved it up the Missouri to just below the current Canyon Ferry Dam. When they moved it, they actually had plans on working at the French Bar. French Bar is another famous mining area that's out on the Missouri that was high gold content, worked extensively throughout the 1870s. Um, with when they moved it, there was one small problem. There was already a bridge in place, the York Bridge, 
1947, they actually got permission from the county, um, uh, the the county to actually disassemble one of those um, one of those spans, and they moved it through underneath through one of those spans. This is a fantastic photo I recently found as part of the historic American engineering record. Pictures of old buildings, old bridges. It's really, really well done, very high quality photos. When it was moved to, so this is a picture from the magazine Pitt and Quarry, which was um, doing a, a story about the dredge itself. The dredge was actually, um, they didn't do really well at French Bar, and it turned out that, lucky for them, there was going to be a dam built there because. Um, they got the contract to help build the dam. So here's the dredge down in this very corner here, working at French Bar. The actual French Bar where the mining went on was way up here on the, that in the old days is way up here on the side bench. Again, way above the river. Here shows a diagram showing where the future um, dam will be. Shows the old Canyon Ferry Dam. Here's Cemetery Island. Um, Lake Sewell sitting up behind it. Um, so they ended up working on it. I just zoomed in on the, on the dredge. This is a reverse view. This was done for the Corps of Engineers, and they actually had drawn in where the future lake level is going to be. There's where it is now, Canyon Ferry Village. Um, and this one, too, the dredge is visible in the very far distance working. Um, Cemetery Island. Uh, this island here below the dam, they, they, it was decided that they would use the gravel within here and below as part of the gravel um, for use in the dam. So some of the gravel from that area was put into the dam. Also cobbles from some of the old mining areas. Cobbles refer to the larger rock as opposed to just the small sand and gravel. Um, I have a lot of these pictures of the dam construction thanks to Norm Smith. Norm Smith is also a member of the Gem and Mineral Club. Uh, he actually worked on the dam and had a color um, camera at the time. So he has wonderful photos of, that he took. He was pretty good at documenting it. Um, below the, the, for the dam construction, they put in a temporary bridge. On this upper side, you see the, uh, the coffer dam. Coffer Dam is built to um, hold out the water while they're, um, while they're excavating for the dam. So the dredge went up in the middle, dug out as much as it could, and they later came in with bulldozers, took out more, and then they had men come in and actually scrape it down to the bare rock. Um, and they were breaking out, this is shale, breaking out the rock. It's really fascinating. There's a great book at the public library is checked out right now, but documenting completely the, the construction of the dam. Here you see the dredge, um, and below is the lower coffer dam, and then the upper coffer dam. You can see some of the excavation they've done here. They actually used the dredge to fill in this dirt against, they put in pilings, filled in the, um, filled in the dirt. Here you get a better idea of how those coffer dams worked. This is the dredge transitioning up above the upper coffer dam so that it can go ahead and fill it in behind it. Um, this one on the left, I like. He said he, Norm said he almost lost his balance taking it. And you can, 
and it has it has the it has the the basin where the dam will be built has the bypass channel um, all that was is wood this is um, pilings driven in and then a wood um, bathtub and then the root that's the Missouri River running through it there you can see it from the side again there's the dredge and again this is the upper end where the Missouri's dumping into it they haven't yet in this one they haven't yet pumped it out um, later they did have a break in that um, bypass dam and they are the bypass and they did have to pump they had to repair it and then pump back out that 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 basin um, and then once they got the the coffer dams they left the construction and went up to build the aggregate piles on the left you see before on the right you see after and and you can actually see the lake starting to fill in here um, the aggregate pile so this is the old Canyon Ferry Bridge. It used to be the, the two crossing points on the river were at um, Trout Creek and here at Canyon Ferry. And then you could cross at the upper end of Lake Sewell. Um, added some pictures of the construction. Um, it's just kind of neat to see it in color um, and then some black and whites of it. And of course the finished bridge. But it didn't go to South America. <laughs> they actually disassembled it <laughs> following the dam um, construction. They disassembled the entire dredge and they shipped it to South Carolina. Um, Owen Perry had discovered um, deposits on the horse um, on Horse Creek. It's a tributary of the Savannah River, and um, he found the deposits he found there were titanium. And um, you see it says mon, uh, monazite. Monazite is a type of rock. It's, um, it contains rare earth elements, including thorium. At this time, post-war, thorium was kind of a marketable resource. The, the titanium, of course, was because you could use it to reinforce um, aircraft. As you're building faster jet aircraft, the titanium is going to make it lighter, but still have the tensile strength of, of steel. So it was, again, he had extraordinary timing. And um, interestingly enough, the same gentleman, who, and I think they had a pretty good working relationship, um, John Murdy um, uh, Jr. Uh, documented the the geology of the Missouri of the Canyon Ferry area at the same time that Perry um, was working out at El Dorado Bar. Well, he also wrote a, another document for the USGS about these monzonite um, uh, monazite um, deposits, and so he had an in with the guy who was dredging them. So it worked out well for both of them. Um, Interestingly enough, see the superstructure has changed slightly. They, they've had to do something to the superstructure, I think, as part of the moving. Maybe it was too hot up there. Maybe they needed to add a different sequence into it to make it so that they could recover the titanium. They worked there, um, 55 to 59. And then, strangely enough, they packed it up. Now, they didn't actually, Perry didn't go this time. 
He actually sold it to a, a company out of California who was interested. They thought they had some good um, working opportunities in the um, Animas River Basin north of Durango, Colorado. It's just about seven miles north of it. Um, and so they took the dredge, they packed it up, took 50 truckloads um, to move it. They assembled it and they went to work. I did talk to, um, through email, um, to the people in Durango at their um, local museum and they um, referred me to a local historian. Um, one of the responses was interesting in that they, 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 the response was very short and it was to the effect of, yeah, they worked there, uh, didn't get much gold, but they sold sand. <laughs> I, think it went to, I think it went to South America after there. <laughs> Just paraphrasing. But in fact, it did work there. They didn't get much gold. <laughs> and, and, and they did sell uh, one of the byproducts of dredging. They do can, if, you're, if you know what you're doing, you can sell the gravel. And they also sold the gravel in South Carolina. They sold the gravel here. Um, so that's a byproduct. We know from our own dredge out in the valley that Helena Sand and Gravel worked out there. So um, it's an interesting byproduct. Uh, the, the Durango story is much underdocumented. I don't know much about it. Um, the, the deposits seem to have been um, more encased in quartz then, uh, and so it wasn't as free milling, and so the dredge wasn't as built um, to recover uh, the, the gold, and so they just didn't do as well. That's actually the last place that I know of, the, of where the dredge exists. Um, from everything I can tell, it was moved from Durango. Don't know for sure where. Um, this is the only photo of it in Durango. And it's not even built. <laughs> it's, just, it's just from the Durango um, uh, newspaper about the dredge starting its work. Um, but I like to think that maybe it might have gone to South America. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did find this picture, and, and it was in a prospectus um, from the... Um, from um, Minas Gerais in Brazil. And it's describing this dredge that's um, operated, and I won't try Portuguese, <laughs> um, by, this, uh, by this company. This company actually, I had looked up enough to know that they did actually in this, um, have actually had major dredges on this river for over 30 years. And, um, this one is a pretty good match. For, it's definitely, it definitely is a Yuba dredge. You can tell by the ladder, um, the superstructure, the, um, the stacker arm is out here. It's not covered in that beautiful canvas that you so often see. Um, who knows? It might be. It's hard to say. <laughs> um, the last thing that I was going to share with you tonight how, is that in doing this research, I also found um, something interesting that I don't think many of us as Hellenans know about, and that's this. This is a sculpture that's in front of the main entrance to the National Museum, um, Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. 
and that's Charles O. Perry, internationally renowned sculptor and architect. And he was born here in Helena. Yeah. Um, one of his sculptures is on the um, main campus at the University of South Carolina Aiken. Uh, it's called Double Knot. It's another of these kind of Mobius strip type ones. And um, it's actually very well thought of by their, and it's actually dedicated to Owen Perry, his father, who was the dredge operator. He also invented a chair very similar to the ones you're sitting in, these stacking chairs with a very special backing portion of it that allows it to, to flex more freely for you. That's my talk. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it.